0: Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Insights and Communications Executive at AMBA and BJA. In this podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking to Trond Unheim, who is a self-confessed jack of all trades, from author to podcaster to entrepreneur, to name a few of his skills. I had so much to ask Trond about. We spoke about some of his history in connecting people in the MIT Startup Exchange, his predictions for the future, the skills that we will all need to be learning for the future of work, and the need to be successful at failure. Here's that conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career, please?
1: Sure. I am a jack of all trades. I do a lot of different things and I do them somewhat well, but I don't dive uh, deep enough into many things to call myself, you know, uh, an ace in anything. So I have perfected the art of straddling a lot of different domains. And that's kind of what I do. I'm more of a connector. So I have kind of worked across every sector now in society from startups to large companies, to governments, to think tanks, to investment firms, uh, and pretty much anything in between. But I do obsess about one thing. I obsess about what happens next. So I think I am uh, deeply engaged in the future, which is a kind of a strange thing, I guess. But yeah, I mean, if you want some details, I have worked, uh, you know, uh, at the EU on e government. I have worked at Oracle on technology strategy. I have been at MIT running, uh, um, you know, lecturing at the business school and also running uh, a program that we can talk about called MIT Startup Exchange. And I'm now somewhat of a, I have like more of a portfolio career even right now, uh, straddling kind of various investment roles. And a uh kind of ecosystem role at a at a startup in in addition to writing uh, a bunch of books actually actually at the moment
0: there's so much i want to ask you about um you, yeah jack of all trades seems to sum up really well but the first thing i want to ask is how do you manage your time between all of your commitments it just sounds like there's so much going on
1: honestly i don't always manage my time well <laughs> So, the honest answer is it's a big struggle. The problem with having the outlook on life that I do, where you're interested in a lot of different things, is that they don't always fall into line. So, I tend to get a lot of interesting opportunities at the same time. And then sometimes there's complete, you know, a, a drought and there's zero. And, you know, you need to just go into yourself and sort of figure out yourself what, what to do. So, right now, I'm in this uh, stage of having too many things. And uh, the only thing to say about that is, you know, I have also thought pretty deeply about productivity and the balance really between doing things and thinking and reflecting. So I am pretty good about once there is too much to kind of shove things to the side and say, well, what really matters? The uh, honest answer though, to some of that is when you do shove things aside, you don't do those things as well. And sometimes people tell you that. Uh, so you, you just have to have a very good internal compass uh, and know what's important to, to you. And also obviously have responsibility towards the things that you have taken on. So I also do feel that uh, responsibility sometimes when I have taken on something to sort of carry it out. But I think being uh, vicious really about making uh, prioritizing is, is very, very important in in every in everybody's career. Uh, but it does uh, certainly become important now uh, in a society where there's so many things you actually could focus on. So even as I have perfected, I guess, the jack of all trades, it doesn't mean that I do everything. It means that I pick uh, a few trades and then kind of try, try to do them well and straddle those well. It doesn't mean that I do everything.
0: Well, one thing I'd like to ask you about is your involvement in the MIT Startup Exchange. Can you tell me a little bit more about this?
1: Well, it was a bit of a mystery, actually, because I was working at MIT and then a department there came and said, well, you know, we need some help with our startups. And I thought that sounds insane because the whole world thinks that MIT is doing everything right when it comes to spinning out startups, creating startups, uh, working with startups. It was a bit of a mystery that this service was even needed, but I ended up coordinating basically. It turns out I was the only one uh, that took an interest in gathering you know, who, who all of these startups were, who the founders were, I got to know them. And I built a program to introduce these startups on behalf of MIT to industry partners and the interesting thing with that is you know a, a lot of people will will be aware of the need for investments in startups but if you are a founder and if you understand anything about innovation you you realize that it is the first sort of corporate partnership is actually sometimes even more important than the first money in, because without these partners, you can't build a product and you can't actually prove that you have a product and you certainly can't build a good product. So the things that we did with with that eventually was, you know, we had a massive number of startups comparatively, you know, over a thousand now, I think some, some 15, 1600 startups and then a lot of different corporations. And it was like selling ice creams to to kids in in the summer right both parties were very interested in each other so it was a great great uh thing to do and um turned out to be pretty popular
0: is that why you give yourself the name the connector
1: (laughs) yeah well that's one one of the things that i've done um before that at the eu i also built a platform called uh, ePractice. And uh, the strange thing there is they had had some sort of project uh, for a while and uh, no one was interested in this best practice program. So they were almost about to shut it down. But uh, over a bit of time, two, two, three years, we built this out with a bunch of different partners, and uh, we had a hundred thousand people on that platform, which, you know, ten years ago or something, was was a you know pretty big deal for a government uh, IT uh, you know sharing program. So I, I think I've I've done this many times in my career to try to connect people, try to find points of connections that that matter and uh, build a community around it and it's not very easy i'm involved in something similar right now and it's uh, when when you don't when you haven't found the formula formula yet then everyone uh, you know no one really sees it and you have to be the one uh, if you're responsible to to find that magical point of interconnection and then you have to just dive into what you need to do to make that community work and it's not you know about less than half of these kinds of initiatives that I start will will, will actually work. It's very, very hard to build these things.
0: That's amazing. I want to ask about one of your recent books where you made some predictions for a life post-COVID. Could you tell me a little bit more about your book, The Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society?
1: Sure. This happened basically in January of last year when... You know, the news was com- kind of coming out from China that something was really uh, a bit strange about this particular virus strain. And I fairly quickly realized, I must say, that this, the world was going to change forever. Mm-hmm. So I sat down and decided, you know, I'm not a medical doctor and I can't contribute in that way. Uh, what I thought I could do was at least uh, line up some of the thoughts about where this could go. So I wrote down several scenarios and I put it together in a book that was published uh, you know, in May of last year. Um, I can just line up the scenarios for you because some of them are actually panning out right now. But with, like with any scenario, the world doesn't turn out any one way. It is a combination, right? So when you write these, so you keep that in mind. But the, the first thing I thought of was, you know, borderless world. What if the entire world actually now comes together and realizes that all of our national borders you know, don't really matter so much in this age of the virus. So I was envisioning a world where kind of globalization went to the extreme and where we started collaborating and where science really became very, very valued. So enough said about that scenario. You can sort of imagine what you think has happened you know, to that kind of scenario. Number two is almost the opposite. So it's like nation state renewal. And I was imagining that the nation states as the only governmental body that really can act right now. It's imperfect, but it is a powerful uh, state of affairs. They have money, they have you know influence, and they have access to media that they would actually pull together and become much, much stronger to the detriment actually of any sort of global trade and things like that. And I think you're seeing some, some of those things happen. The third scenario was a bit more dystopian. I called it Two Worlds Apart Unfortunately, I think that's really the one that I feel has has happened. So the two worlds being, you know, the elites versus the sort of the have nots. And uh, I actually imagined a physically separated world. Must say, you know, I uh, happen to belong to uh, certainly the better part of that world, and um, it's not like the whole world has split apart the way that I was just painting it in this book. But to some extent, if you live in a wealthy neighborhood in a wealthy country, right, you get first access to vaccines. You're contemplating vaccine passports. You never really saw the virus because you've kept uh, apart from people, and you could afford to work, uh, you know, offline and and don't didn't really have to go into work. Um, so so that, that's kind of what happened in that scenario, which by the way, turns out to be a pretty boring world, right? When, <laughs> when, when there's really no relations between this very thin global elite who are bored in their gated communities and such. Um, the fourth scenario was pretty interesting. It was I called it Hobbesian chaos. So, you know, Hobbes from the philosopher, uh, you know, who wrote about the state of nature where everybody was fighting against everybody. Uh, so the dystopian part of that would be that I kind of foresaw that if, if the variants took over and I had already written about the variants last year, I knew that that would be the real game. Uh, so I foresaw a world, you know, where the vaccine makers just uh, couldn't get a handle on the variants. And where all governmental power essentially, after a while, just started breaking down because, uh, you know, when you can't control a virus, so you can't control society, you can't control the economy, and then warlords start to rule the world. So that was a pretty, uh, you know, sad state of, of affairs. I don't know that we're right there right now, but, you know, that, that is what would happen if we don't get control of these variants. Uh, the last scenario was a status quo scenario, and it's you, you always put those in into kind of analysis. And the strange thing is, uh, people talk about the new normal, and I know you wanted to ask me about that. I don't know that there will be a new normal to to answer that question, although some things will actually go go back in more senses than one to what it was before. Like, I'm just amused by some of these discussions about how New York is going to change forever and how no one's going to live in London or all these ridiculous things, right? I mean, cities exist for not for one reason, for many, many reasons. And there will always be cities. So yes, there's this tiny, tiny little percentage of people who are moving to the countryside, but the vast majority of people who actually want a job and want to be influential in their job, unfortunately for them, they're gonna have to come back to work at least several days a week because otherwise they will have zero influence. So there are a lot of reasons why the world is in many ways going to turn back the status quo in so many more ways than a lot of sort of very naive futurists are, are painting the picture right now.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you with that. I kind of thought COVID could be a stop kind of break for a lot of bad things that are happening, cl- climate change, etc. But I don't think people kind of taken the opportunity to change as much as they perhaps could have. But are you optimistic about the future of business in the next 10 years? Is there something that you, you feel good about?
1: Oh, look, I combine dystopia with visions. So I think, you know, it all depends on which voices prevail. But yeah, in the next decade, I think there are a lot of good things that can happen. For sure, there's going to be a boom cycle. And that boom cycle, if we do it right, could last for the better part of the decade. So short term, and for me, a decade is kind of the shortest I'm interested in thinking about. And short term, I think this actually is going to be a boon, right? So industry whoever made some strides at transforming, whether it be their production lines or whatever it is, they are going to boom and are gonna have a great, great ride. Um, others obviously are gonna suffer slightly because you know you can't capture these opportunities of the new market unless you're ready for it. But yeah, I think even culturally, we have seen after every major world crisis, whether it be world wars, uh, massive diseases or, uh, even after the Black Death, right? You had the Renaissance. So there, there, there's always a silver lining to any crisis. Um, it just isn't always widespread across society, right? The Renaissance was not, you know, the art wasn't developed in, uh, uh, farmland communities, uh, you know, among rural, really hardworking uh, peasants, you know, it, it happened in the moneyed classes and such. And I think we're, we're seeing a, a version of that now as well. You know, it's w- the innovation happens among people who have the resources to conduct innovation, and those will uh, collect even greater bounties now. But it, it could mean a, a lot of progress in technology in in various types of businesses. And yeah, I, I see some very positive trends for this decade. And I think from from that perspective, this corona crisis was perhaps just just large enough to kind of gel some people into action, but not big enough to actually conduct that massive shock that I was sort of painting could happen you know with my book pandemic aftermath i think we have you know this this was a medium-sized pandemic it was not a huge one it was not a small one it was much larger than most people predicted but it seems to now be contained into something that you know the biggest effects are going to be on kind of the 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 poorer parts of the world that can't afford the vaccine unfortunately and it's going to be very very long lasting for those but for the western market they are going to be able to shake this off. So, so for, for, for the West, it's essentially continuation of business as usual.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we can't talk about trends of the future without talking about tech. And you've just released a new book on the future of tech, how to capture value from disruptive industry trends. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Well, I'll tell you, it's uh, perfect for, for MBA types, right? It was written a little bit as a, a, a book to analyze how society changes with technology, but very much with kind of the MBA mindset in, uh, uh, you know, in mind, I try to stretch the imagination a bit beyond sort of the, ca- the kind of canned analysis of, you know, forces, you know, frameworks are, are a very typical part of, of an MBA education. But, you know, in my mind, technology is not what drives tech. So that's slightly counterintuitive, but basically, you know, regulatory forces, uh, social dynamics, uh, the reception of a technology, all of these things are important, even at very early stages of creating a technology. The best technologies are always created with the users in mind. So the most successful technologies either actually are happenstance because they just happen to have stumbled somehow, you know, maybe a visionary who like saw something but couldn't really explain explain why, right? This would be a Steve Jobs type approach. Uh, Although, you know, they, you know, Apple does an enormous amount of user development as well. So you you can't just say that it's, it's just vision. They have really thought about the user. And then other times it's just pure luck, or you develop something with great strides and it completely fails. So, Uh, And this is not easy to do. That's why there's a book about it. I have failed many times trying to build a technology uh, or a product approach without really deeply thinking about who it was going to be for and how it was going to change their lives. So the book is all about um, trying to analyze how future tech emerges and, you know, gaining a, a, a bit of a framework so you don't have to make up stuff on the fly or you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It gives you kind of a playbook for for how to start thinking about these things, so you can be efficient in your work if you're trying to analyze some phenomenon, and uh, can kind of start analyzing it r- right off the right off the gate. But I also think that we are going into a day and age where the kinds of skills that you need to succeed are a combination of depth and breadth, and I think. I outlined some of those things in the book. So it's more than just analyzing technology, it's about really embodying those kinds of skills. And I think it's a very different educational institution that we need to build in order to to build those uh, skills in our students, in our kids and actually ourselves, right? Cuz you know, even at mid-age you have to now transform because society is changing in so you know, in many ways and in order to understand that you need to go deep, not in just one or two fields, but I talk about these kind of ambidextrous sort of polymaths. We all have to really almost become the Renaissance renaissance man and woman of the past. We have to be skilled in so many soft and hard skills at the same time. Uh, And we have to be able to communicate, but it's just, it's not enough, which I think the MBA education has been stuck for some time in this notion that, You just know a little bit of generic business skills, and then you can communicate with everybody who's a techie and that's all you need. And I really profoundly disagree with that. So the implication for me is that business schools in the future, they need to change a lot of different things. They need to shift to a much deeper content base. Um, I think you have seen this in many business schools. They have moved towards more hands-on and experiential learning. Uh, which obviously is hard to do during COVID, but but it has to be done eventually. And then also, I think, uh, as painful as it is, we do need to move away from the campus model, except from, uh, you know, kind of immersive sprints. So I think the EMBA model is going to go uh, go dominant here. Because people just don't have the time anymore to spend, like, you know, in the U.S. two years and I guess in, in um, various other international programs only one year. But I think even that is just too much. We just, you know, who can spend a year away from from real life, you know, from their career, which is where they really learn things. It, it is the hybrid approach, I think. As important as face-to-face learning is, we have to find these ways. And I think COVID has shown us that if you just build some better tools than the current video conferencing things we have going, which we eventually will, this decade will bring, I think, enormous change to augmented reality and augmented productivity.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where our research shows that business, business education is going as well. But yeah, the book asserts that four factors are needed to create disruption, these being technology, policy, business models and social dynamics. And so I was wondering from these, what do you think will be the next big disruptors?
1: So within these, um, first of all, I have added a kind of a fifth factor, uh, kind of an all encompassing and ever present factor of disruption which is kind of the physical environment that we find ourselves in. So it is true that I most of the book I spend on these four four different forces, but the fifth one is is, is sort of always there as well. And I think, you know, COVID is one example, right? Intrusions of humans into a uh, a pre-existing uh, ecosystem turns uh, actually becomes relevant for analyzing both business and technology. But anyway, in the in a short ter- term I, I cover five different technologies in the book that I think are kind of working together to change the world this decade alone, and they are, you know, AI, synthetic biology, blockchain, robotics, and 3D printing, and all of them are actually interacting in various ways, either on the shop floor or they will be interacting in our educational system, or they will truly actually change the way production happens. Uh, they will change the way we will need to relate to technologies right it is this augmentation idea where we actually are merging and fusing uh with technology you know not not necessarily kind of in this like scary cyborg vision of you know we are all robots uh, now but but also in much more sort of mundane ways we just uh are are having to learn to interact very deeply and embed with the technologies that we create and they become more and more personalized. So that's kind of the short term for me. Those are the ones that we would need to learn more about, start using, start understanding deeply, start developing ethics around and start managing better in the workplace much more longer term there's a bunch of other things that come into play but if you're thinking about just the next decade that those would be the things that i uh, care about
0: to kind of sum up our conversation and um to be like for relevant to our listeners if you had kind of like one or two things that you think everyone should kind of be doing to future-proof them for the next decade what do you think people should be doing
1: well so again this may be a little counterintuitive but i spent uh, a bit of time lately, obsessing over failure as opposed to success. So a lot of the you know prevailing knowledge would be you know go deep, understand all these things, and uh, you know study best practice or st- study a domain and study the knowledge in that domain. But I think if you want to do one thing right that sets you apart from a lot of other people, it would be to have the courage to take risks that. You don't take risks to fail, but inadvertently, when you do take a lot of risks, you do fail. And the most important thing that I discovered about this process was this whole Silicon Valley fail fast culture is actually pretty ridiculous because you don't learn anything from failing fast. If you're going to learn from failure, it needs to be slow and painful because that's, that's how you gain reflection. And it doesn't mean that anything that is slow and painful, you know, leads to reflection. But I do think that growth and true learning is Freudian in the sense that it, it literally affects your identity. So the deepest and smartest thing you can do to set yourself apart from the rest of the world is to deeply reflect on some of the failures. I mean, see, seek out risk so that you are fortunate enough to fail. And then spend the time reflecting, not just on why you failed and how to do it differently later, but reflect on all aspects of how that affected you, why you reacted that way, and just build yourself up again as a much more whole person. And and that really is my recipe, whether it is in science or it is in technology and in business, right? You know, do a startup or engage with one. Those are extremely valuable growth opportunities that you should not short circuit.
0: Well, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I feel like that's a kind of great point to leave it at. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome.
0: If you'd like to hear more from Trond, he has his own podcast called The Futurize Podcast. And as always, if you'd like more about leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition. And make sure to listen out for the next Ambition podcast.